for those who know every line, and for those finding Star Wars for the very first time, welcome to Growing Up Skywalker. Welcome to Growing Up Skywalker. I'm Sam. Hi, I'm Anna. And today we are following up on our previous cliffhanger. We are watching Rebels Season 1, Episode 9, Gathering Forces, and Episode 10, Path of the Jedi. We are dangling off of that cliff of last week's plot. Before we get into the plot, we want to show our solidarity for the SAG-AFTRA and WGA strikes, which are ongoing. As part of that, we hope that we provide a good listening experience for you with the content we create as non-union writers or actors. We're just we're just people. We have day jobs and we're really grateful for your support and we really love doing this project, but we couldn't do it without the writers and actors who are on strike right now. So, we implore you, dear listener, give the watch a break this week. Show your solidarity with these people who are creators. And together we can get them a more equitable working situation because although this is fun and games for us, it is their livelihoods and we all need to support each other. Yeah. So it really helps if you could just skip the rewatch this week. We're trying not to drive additional traffic to the platforms that are being stricken against. So hopefully you can listen to our plot recap and and know what's happening without having to go to Disney+. Plus. Or wherever you get it. If you get it someplace else besides Disney Plus, it's probably okay. <laughs> probably, yeah. That's true. That's true. Okay. It's <laughs> right. not, yeah, just, yeah, take that as you will. All right. <laughs> Solidarity forever. <laughs> so what happens in Gathering Forces? Well, previously during Empire Day, the Spectres had run around, managed to rescue a Rodian named Sibo, who knew Ezra's parents and he was like a good family friend. Yeah, he was. And but he, he's been brain wiped. He has a enormous magnet on his head that scrambles his brains. No, it is a neural circuitry unit that the Empire installed in his spinal cord to make him a more effective data processor, which is so dark. Anyway, they escape from Empire Day being chased by ISB agent Callus and the Grand Inquisitor into space. And this episode begins right where that one ended with the ghost being chased through space by a bunch of TIE fighters and also the Grand Inquisitor's extra cool TIE fighter. I feel like we should remind listeners that the reason that SIBO is being chased is because he downloaded half of the Empire's files into his brain. So he knows most of what they're up to and also things that they probably didn't even know that they were up to. So Chopper is zorched by a laser shot. There's gunners on every single gun. The, ship, the ghost is flying along and there's just no escape and they don't have a way to chart a hyperspace course. And Hera's like, oh dear, here come two Star Destroyers. We're about to become a real ghost. So Ezra's in there working on the nav computer with a screwdriver when Sibo comes by and just programs it manually and they go into hyperspace. The bad news is that the Inquisitor threw like a plunger at their ship and it suction cupped onto the hull of the Phantom. And it is a tracker that can track them through hyperspace. But fortunately, it landed on the Phantom and not the Ghost. And so they come up with a plan. The plan is 
Kanan and Ezra are going to board the Phantom and do a hyperspace detach, which is an incredibly dangerous thing, but they need to stick with it because they know that the Grand Inquisitor is also tracking them through the Force. But they're going to go through the asteroid belt of monsters from one of the previous episodes and say, hey, we'll just meet them there and see what happens. Meanwhile, the rest of the ghost is going to run off and drop off Sibo. So the ghost proceeds to do that. The phantom barely spins out of a technicolor hellscape into (laughs) reality and makes it to the asteroid base. They land and they have to learn to commune with the monsters. Yeah. So they're back to the moon where Hera and Sabine almost got eaten by monsters. And Kanan decides that this is a really great time to hammer home the lesson that Ezra failed at two episodes ago, which is connecting to monsters using the force. So this whole time Ezra's been dealing with fear and as he's sitting there, he's like grabbing the monsters. They're all getting near him. They're, they're pacing around him like the predators that they are. And he's like, I'm afraid of knowing the truth about my parents. I forgive you, Sibo. And his distress is so great that it echoes all the way out to Sibo on the ghost. He can hear Ezra saying, I'm so sorry, Sibo, I forgive you. And then Sibo says, I'm so sorry, forgive me. Mm-hmm. I honestly might've gotten choked up just thinking about it. I did. Yep. Yeah, no shame there. Yep. But we cut to the Grand Inquisitor and the first appearance of Admiral Constantine, who is the Admiral of the Seventh Fleet, who are, well, not yet, who's in this region. And the Grand Inquisitor is like, there they are. Let's land. He lands on the asteroid base. He's got like 20 stormtroopers. The stormtroopers affix lights. They pan the lights over. They come across two Jedi sitting there quietly meditating like we found them. And then monsters, just all the monsters attack. 20 monsters, 40 monsters, 100 monsters come out and proceed to eat their fill of stormtroopers. Yeah. Ezra finally cleared the block between himself and the force and was able to order on his monster army. Great success, except they are really no match for the Inquisitor. Yeah, the Grand Inquisitor is like, I have faced way scarier things than this, and I'm going to embarrass you. So he, <laughs> he proceeds to embarrass Kanan. <laughs> He's so good at it. He he just beats him, beats him silly. And he's sitting there with Kanan's lightsaber and his own lightsaber, ready to take on Ezra. And he's taunting Ezra. He's saying, I can feel your fear. I can feel the darkness is too strong for you, orphan. And Ezra is about to fall over the cliff and he lifts up his hands and he grabs way too much of the force. And the mamish monster comes out behind him and the Grand Inquisitor goes from like, oh, I may have pushed him too far. Ezra summons a dragon. However, Kanan chooses this moment to wake up and says, Ezra, no, because he sees what Ezra has done. He dredged up smog from the deeps. It's like everything else was orcs. And then all of a sudden, here is a actual monster. So the monster fights the Grand Inquisitor to, to a standstill. And Ezra and Kanan manage to make their way out because Ezra passes out from using this much force. Kanan retrieves his lightsaber. They escape in the Phantom. They shoot the Grand Inquisitor's shuttle because screw you guy. And they fly off. The Grand Inquisitor manages to beat back the Mega monster and is like, oh, my master is not going to be pleased. And they escape. 
And then back on the ghost, Ezra's trying to process everything that is going on with Sibo, with Sibo knowing something about his parents, with processing his parents may not be dead. And then Sabine comes into the gun turret and she's like, I grabbed the old holodisc from your parents' house. I cleaned it up. It's for you. Happy birthday, Ezra Bridger. Because it's still Empire Day, and it's a picture of the Bridgers with little seven-year-old Ezra, because that's the last time he saw his parents was eight years ago when he was seven years old. Ugh, too sweet to be believed. Also, what the ghost was up to this whole time, they drop off Sibo, and Sibo is talking with Hera because he's finally kind of got his facilities back, and he's saying, I have something very important to tell Ezra, and Hera says, tell me, I'll tell Ezra. As they drop off off Sibo on a Corellian CR-90, a blue one, that belongs to Fulcrum. And that is the end of Gathering Forces and the end of that arc, but we move right along into the next episode. Yeah, Path of the Jedi picks up on the threads that were lingering after Gathering Forces because Kanan is, you know, understandably deeply freaked by Ezra connecting to the dark side. Mm -hmm. So he creates a test for Ezra. He has to use the force to locate one of the old Jedi temples scattered throughout the galaxy. And Ezra finds one right there on Lethal. And importantly, Kanan did know that it was there, but he's just meditating with Ezra. He sits in the back and he's like, you're driving. Like, where are we going? And Ezra sits there. He's like, oh, I don't know its coordinates, but it can get us there. And Kanan says, cool. Yeah. I didn't know it was going to be this one on Lethal, but it's cool that you found one. Yeah. Love that. That was part one of the test was finding it. So they roll up in the Phantom. For part two, Ezra has to figure out how to get inside. He puts his hands on this big sandstone cone and he listens to what the stone wants. And what it wants is for both Master and Padawan to gain entrance together. So he and Kanan both use the force, they put their hands out, they twist the cone open, and this doorway spirals up out of the base. And then for part three of the test, Kanan sends Ezra into the temple alone with no directions, no guidance. Ezra doesn't even know what he's looking for. He just knows he has to go in. Well, importantly, as soon as they walk into this temple, Ezra freaks out because there are some mummified Jedi masters there. And him freaking out makes the temple descend back into the the planet. So Ezra has to go ahead alone and Kanan has to sit there like, yeah, I'm going to sit here with these guys, these mummies, <laughs> because I'm putting my life in your hands because you're putting your training in my hands. Oh, it's so good. So Ezra goes into the temple. He's faced with a bunch of doors. He does the Star Wars eeny, meeny, miny, mo to figure out what direction to go into. And then Kanan sprints out from behind him and he says, come on, we don't have a lot of time. The Empire could already be after us. And Ezra's like, weren't you just back there in the antechamber? But he's racing after him and he hits the edge of this huge black cliff. And then all of a sudden he spins around and the Inquisitor is holding a red lightsaber at Kanan's throat. Mm -hmm. So there is a lot of weirdness going on. The Inquisitor force chokes Ezra to get him out of the way. And then Kanan and the Inquisitor are dueling. And then they're dueling back and forth and back and forth, and they lock blades. And then the Inquisitor beats back Kanan. And as Kanan is distracted, the Inquisitor runs him through, throws his body off the cliff, 
Ezra's screaming. He grabs the lightsaber. He can't get it to turn on. And then the Inquisitor says, apparently somebody's not ready to be a Jedi. And then Ezra falls down the cliff. And then, bam, he wakes up in his bedroom on the ghost. So he can tell something about this situation is really screwy. He hasn't quite figured it out yet. And then there's another series of terrible events. First, he walks in on everyone on the ghost saying really mean stuff about him. Mm-hmm. Then he sees the Inquisitor slaughtering them. And then he falls down another temple and wakes back up. And at this point, he realizes that what he's been seeing are probably visions. They may not be real. What is real is that he is on his own. And in that moment, he realizes that he has to confront his big worst fear of being abandoned. And then it's also where he realizes this is where he's his strongest. He has survived every one of his worst days up until this point, and so he can definitely do it again. So Ezra squares up his shoulders, he opens the door in front of him, and he faces down the Inquisitor for the final time. He lets the Inquisitor slash a killing blow at him with the red lightsaber, and when he opens his eyes, the whole vision has dissolved. And then whose voice fills the temple but Jedi Master Yoda? Who? Ezra has no idea who that is. No idea! (laughs) Yoda says, big fears have you faced. Come and see more clearly what you could not see before. So Ezra follows this cloud of lights through the temple. He's following Yoda's voice. And then finally, they come to this cavern, and Yoda starts to question Ezra. He's like, why do you want to be a Jedi? Is it for revenge? Is it because you want power? Is it because Kanan said you should be? And Ezra is getting more and more agitated. And then finally, he lands on an answer. He wants to protect people. He wants to be like his family on the ghost, selfless and helping people to live. Mm -hmm. And then Yoda laughs and he says, good. The path in front of you will be difficult But you may one day be a Jedi. And then a kyber crystal floats down and lands right in Ezra's palms. And at the same time, Yoda has also been speaking to Kanan and questioning Kanan just as hard, questioning why Kanan hasn't committed fully to being a master and training Ezra. Yeah. So when Ezra finally emerges from the temple and walks up to Kanan, They have both walked through this gauntlet of difficult questions from someone wiser than them, and they have changed and committed to what they're doing. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's really cool. And then we close the episode back on the ghost. Ezra has scrounged bits and pieces from everybody on the ghost, and he built his very own lightsaber. And he turns it on and it works and theme song roll out. So what do you want to talk about? Well, let's start at the beginning with uh, gathering forces because finishing this arc, I think, is really critical for moving the greater rebels plot along. Ooh, okay. Say more. Well, first of all, we get to see the incredibly sexy TIE fighter at the Grand Inquisitor. <laughs> I just love those things. I honestly, it looked like any other TIE fighter to okay. me. Okay, so what makes it cool, in the first movie, 
we see in A New Hope, we see TIE LN fighters, the ones with those, those straight sides. And then we see Vader's TIE fighter, which is the TIE X1 or TIE V. Meh. TIE something. TIE something, which which has bent wings. And this is like halfway between them. It's got curved wings. And what I love about that is that it shows that it's like a specialty tie that it, it shows the military industrial complex is being installed on Lothal. And that's why Sibo volunteered to have his brain pithed because that comes out during this arc is that it's not mandatory. Sabine exposits all this that Sibo volunteered to get all these secrets from the empire and then liberated himself. He is a free agent spy. Yeah, kind of. What we found out about Sibo is that apparently he had some kind of promise. Like he was an old family friend of the Bridgers. It sounds like he promised to them that he would look after Ezra if anything happened to them. And then they got absconded with and Sibo did not raise Ezra like he promised. Mm -hmm. What he did do is he volunteered to get this circuit in his brain and went and tried to track down what happened to the Bridgers from the Empire. And along the way, purely by accident, he ended up downloading all of this intel. So he was like an accidental spy. But once he had that information, he extricated himself. He got free and was looking for... Uh, he went to the Bridger's basement initially and was looking for like a way out, looking for help. And it just so happened that he was able to meet up with the Spectres, which is super cool. But it moves along the plot of Fulcrum and the Rebellion so much that now they have a massive pile of information, a massive data dump from the Empire. Hopefully, yeah. It it happened off screen. The unloading of Sibo to Fulcrum's crew. And like, I hope that the Rebellion got all of the data. Well, yeah. I mean, whenever you see one of those Corellian CR-90s, you're like, that's a Rebellion ship. But then, importantly, also in this arc, we see Kanan really moving into his own as a Jedi. And oh my so, God. like, he gets his butt handed to him by the Inquisitor now like three times in a row and two of them were real. He got his butt whooped so hard. And so that means that's really important for the next one, the path of the Jedi that now he's like, yeah, I'm actually fully committed. And one of the really interesting parts about the fight on the asteroid base on an axis between Kanan and the Grand Inquisitor is that Kanan is not doing well. So he pulls out his blaster and like tries to gut shoot the Inquisitor and the Inquisitor dodges and then flings the blaster away. That's like not something... That's like a dirty trick that Kanan would have as like a former Padawan living a life of crime doing these things. But it seems like by the end of this arc, he's being moved in the direction of becoming an actual Jedi and, you know, not using a blaster unless you need to hit something super far away. <laughs> yeah, there was there was so much going on with Kanan. The Kanan and Ezra relationship was really the emotional heart of these episodes, the first thing that I really noticed with the Inquisitor and Kanan duel on Anaxis in the in the Schwanster facility mm -hmm. was that it seemed like Kanan had done a little bit of training on his own time since the last time he faced the Inquisitor. I thought he was doing a lot better than when they infiltrated Luminara's cell and the Inquisitor was toying with him. But yeah, when he pulled out that blaster... I connected that moment of his desperation and trying to make up for this gap in his skill with the conversation that Kanan had with Yoda on in the Lothal Temple, 
where Kanan was saying, it's so hard for me to train Ezra because of who I am and how far I fell from the Jedi way. And for me, it was hinting at some kind of deep shame that Kanan has about his path as a rogue and a scoundrel. There's that and survivor's guilt for being a surviving Jedi. He remarks at the beginning of Path of the Jedi that there, when he was a kid, so 15, I guess probably at this point, like 17 years earlier, there were 10,000 Jedi spread throughout the galaxy. 10,000! And thousands of these temples because these temples sort of are places consecrated by the force and like exist in a realm outside of space and time. You know, Ezra goes in there and there's bottomless cliffs that lead him to other places. They probably walked in and were never more than 10 feet from each other, Hmm. but could still just be swallowed up by the force because you're entirely faced with your own fears. You're in a place of your own making. Yeah. Yeah. Ezra got his very own Ilum. He got his Mm -hmm. very own Yoda's journey from the Clone Wars. Which makes a lot of sense because the path of the Jedi, especially now that the High Republic works have come out, seems to be it was something very wide. And then by the time of the Clone Wars, it had narrowed to be a very centralized Coruscant-based thing, as opposed to being decentralized and on a bunch of different planets and places and things. Yeah, that brought up one of my big initial reactions about Path of the Jedi, which is that it was so mystical and it was so beautiful and it was such a customized experience for Ezra. So what I was thinking about is that I've been so worried that Ezra is going to get this field-stripped Padawan training Mm -hmm. because Kanan was just a Padawan when Order 66 happened, and Kanan never finished his training. And so I've been worried that Kanan can't train Ezra well. Yeah. And I was also worried that Ezra wasn't going to have all of the Padawan experiences that other Padawans have gotten. I mean, I mentioned Ilum. We saw in the Jedi Younglings arc back in like season five of the Clone Wars that there are rituals and experiences that all younglings got to do, and they were benchmarks and milestones for their training, right? And I was worried that Ezra was just going to get this really cobbled together education that wasn't going to serve him well. And then I think there was something so beautiful about Path of the Jedi, because I'm sure that at some points in Jedi history, the curriculum has not been standardized, right? And masters and Padawans were cobbling experiences together. And what was so cool about Ezra's trial is that the Force filled in all the gaps. Yeah, including from a grandmaster who he had never met, but still asked him the questions he needed to ask himself. Yeah, it's like, I just need to worry less about Ezra and trust that the Force is going to provide for him, right? Yeah. He's going to get what he needs to get out of his training as long as he is trusting and open and vulnerable. And those were all things he had to learn. And I think that's the key that Kanan has to learn is that it's not about like the lightsaber forms and it's not about the torque and the wrist motions. It's about like opening up who you are. It actually seems to me that one can become a powerful force user on the path to being a Jedi 
pretty rapidly. Hmm. And then it's a intensely personal journey of understanding your limits of learning different senses that you didn't know you had and understanding like what you can and can't do and what happens when you give in to fear. Mm. Because that is what Ezra ends up learning is that he is so afraid that Kanan's going to die that he completely opens himself up to the dark side, which is what the Inquisitor was saying. Like, you're going to fail. You should open yourself up to the dark side for unlimited power. And Ezra's like, okay, cool. I will. And the Grand Inquisitor's like, wait, hold up. I didn't, wait, mean, I didn't not mean it like, like that. Now. <laughs> and and it, it almost kills him, right? Ezra passes out and a monster is looming over him and he's in a death situation and barely survives because he reached into that dark side and he needs to practice d- the discipline, but he needs to learn like even what the discipline is. And that's who he is. And that's also who Kanan is, are people who learn by doing. Yeah, I mean, I can hard relate to that. Mm -hmm. I am also a kinesthetic learner. What is so interesting is that Ezra was on the right track. Like fear was one of the elements of what he needed to learn. But the difference between what he was doing and gathering forces when he summoned the dragon from the deeps is that he leveraged his fear into a powerful force call. And then... What he did in Path of the Jedi when he finally faced down the Inquisitor and let the Inquisitor kill him was that he learned equanimity in the face of fear. Yes. Like what he was most afraid of, it turns out, was Kanan dying and not being able to protect Kanan Mm -hmm. and the people that he loved not loving him and... Than them being slaughtered and he's helpless to do anything about it. But it turns out that he wasn't afraid of dying. He was afraid of being alone. He was afraid of being alone. And then his moment of strength came when he was sitting there saying, I've been alone before and I survived. I can survive. Yeah. He took all of the teeth out of the fear and mm-hmm. said, okay, fine. I I embrace this. And then that's when he had his moment of enlightenment. That was the original working title of this episode was Enlightenment. Interesting. Yeah, isn't that nice? Yeah, I like that. I think that Path of the Jedi, the title Path of the Jedi brings some really important stuff to this because for me, this episode, despite the fact that it didn't focus so much on Kanan, is much about Kanan's journey Mm. because Kanan needs to become a fully fledged Jedi before he can train a Jedi. Right now they're stumbling in the dark and Kanan needs to have the faith in himself that he can train Ezra, but he doesn't. He's afraid too. He never reached much further than Ezra is now. Mm. And so they're really struggling and Kanan's learned some stuff. He's learned a lot of stuff, but he's also failed in a lot of ways. And he doesn't, he's afraid that Ezra's going to fail like he did. I really felt for Kanan, especially in Gathering Forces. He's got this massive responsibility to Ezra. Mm -hmm. He even says it in Path of the Jedi when Ezra says, you're putting your life in my hands. And Kanan says, you put your training in mine. And they're equivalent. Yeah. The train, like putting your training in someone's hands is putting your life in their hands also. And it's just like... Kanan has this powerful force user who's getting more and more powerful every day. And Kanan has to teach him so fast, but he's got other stuff going on and he never finished his training. And 
Ezra scared him. Yeah, because Ezra reached to the dark side and he knew it was the dark side. Kanan could feel that. It woke him up. And then afterwards, Ezra was like, I feel so cold. And that seems to be what the uh, aura of the dark side does. It makes force users feel cold. Mm. But Ezra had overexerted himself. And in the High Republic books, this actually happens to someone who reaches and grabs the dark side. And it, they do it to save like a million people by redirecting an asteroid. Wow. But, yeah. And they're, they're tearing themselves apart and they're ripping open their own selves and opening up to the dark side. And everyone around them is like, hey, uh, how you doing, buddy? Like, Oof. we all saw that. Everyone saw that. Everyone felt that. All of your friends felt that. And I think that's really interesting for recognizing how it's there, like, and how easy it is to draw on it and how in a moment of weakness, you may feel like you should draw on it. Mm. And that is the appeal of the dark side. Well, we get that almost throwaway line that I think is really important, where at the end of the episode, Kanan and Ezra are debriefing. And Kanan says, if your will isn't strong enough when you open yourself to the force, you become vulnerable to the dark side. Mm. And you know what that reminded me of was Anakin. Yeah, yeah. Because Anakin did that all the time, but he was, as always, a creature of extremes. I'm always reminded of uh, two moments in Anakin's force-using career. One of them is when he couldn't save Rush Clovis because he had opened himself up to the dark side, so he couldn't even use any force. Season six of the Clone Wars, yeah. Mm -hmm. And then the other one is the Mortis arc, where he is using both sides of the force to shackle the force monsters back into being because he's like, in terms of choice, I take the choice. (laughs) (laughs) I reached a fork in the road and I took it. Yeah, exactly. And (laughs) that's like what he uses the force for. And both of those are elements of him actually either having like too little will or enough will to do what he needs to do. Yeah. There's a there's a stylized illustration on the outside of some of the Jedi temples. I saw this in the concept art for these episodes. And there are these stylized images of the light side and the dark side of the force being intertwined. Mm-hmm. They're kind of like swirling darkness with this beacon of light in the middle. And I think what Star Wars wants us to conclude is that neither the dark side nor the light side exist separately and you don't need to pick one or the other but you can't let one subsume the other right like you can't go full dark side and you can't go full light side either you're more powerful when you accept everything about everything i think that If you go full light side, you aren't actually like taking anything from it. You're just giving to it. Mm. And so you can't harness the power of the force to do, to lift things, to, to trick things, to, to, to like empower yourself to win your battles, unless you're taking a little bit of it. And I think if you take it too far, it becomes something of selfishness. Mm. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so like, that's the line that, 
Ezra is asked in Path of the Jedi, who, why do you wish to become a Jedi? And he's like, well, to get vengeance on the Empire. <laughs> and Yoda's like, did Kanan teach you that? Because like, no. like that no, is you're questionable. Right, you're right, you're right. All right. Well, <laughs> what I really want to do is protect people. I want to protect the crew. I want to protect myself. I want to protect Sibo. I want to protect my family. I want to protect everyone. And this protection of everyone, well, that's kind of moving in the opposite direction of like, that's fully opening yourself up as well. But that is a path of light, mm -hmm. it's protecting others. Being selfless in that can mean like enriching yourself and enriching your enriching your self-worth, but it also means being there for other people when they need it. And I think that's the path of the Jedi. And it's a unique one for like a spiritual empowerment. Yeah, I like that you use the word power because that one of Yoda's big questions for Ezra is, oh, so you want power, but having power over someone or over something is different than being powerful. Mm -hmm. And what Ezra concludes is that he doesn't want power over, he wants to be powerful, powerful enough to fulfill a mission of good. And then Yoda finally hears that from him, gets the answer that he wants and says, okay, yeah, you're on the right track. Yeah. I found this whole interaction very interesting because what type of thing, what, what does the logistics of this look like? Yeah. Did, right. Did Yoda spend, so I'm reminded of the laundry books, which are fantastic. Um, if you like urban fantasy, but the, uh, the detached special secretary who is the version of the necromancer in this organization basically has to spend a bunch of their time going around and doing like special missions on things. And that happens in multiple books. And it seems like that might've been Yoda's job, or it's probably the job of generations of Jedi is, Hey, you are not, you're in between Padawans right now, or you have like a Padawan who just is doing the physicality of it. And you just need to get him past puberty at this point, but they're, they're on the right path. Why don't you travel to a hundred temples? Follow your heart to 100 temples and imbue them with the lessons you've learned. And I wonder if this temple on Lothal is one of those temples that like Yoda imbued with his learnings. Because is this temple an aperture for him to like for Yoda to communicate with Kanan and Ezra or, or what is it? Because as far as we know, Yoda's alive right now, but it doesn't seem like this is the alive Yoda. It feels like this is a reflection. Oh, I didn't get that at all. What did you get? I got that Yoda was sitting on Dagobah, meditating, mm. felt the ripple of the force that the Inquisitor felt, and realized that Kanan and Ezra were on the move, had entered the temple, and then Yoda, through some extremely powerful kind of like force projection, sent his consciousness to commune with them. Hmm. That so was my understanding. It's either a recording, like I, like I'm an saying, interactive AI recording, or, or it's the real Yoda. And I thought it was the real Yoda. And I was like, wow, imagine the strength that it would take to project your consciousness through a galaxy and hold not one, but two meaningful conversations. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that makes sense, too. But then how would, I guess... It's brought up in Empire Strikes Back, which this all of Rebels takes so much from Empire Strikes Back. I think it's really cool. In on Dagobah, where Yoda ends up, uh, there's a cave, which is a place of evil, which is a place of force reflection. And you only when you go into it, you bring 
only what you take with you. Hmm. And so like all of your fears, all of your weapons, all of your hopes, all of your dreams come with you to give you a forced journey. So yeah, it's like one of the trials that Yoda and the younglings and now Ezra have gone through. So it seems like maybe there's places for the force throughout this and then having a guide to give you a little prod in one direction or another is really important. But is Yoda actually on the line watching all these Jedi temples? That's an interesting, interesting I, concept. I think he tuned into the line when he noticed Kanan and Ezra going to that specific temple on Lethal. Mm -hmm. I imagine he is spending his life meditating and is so in tune with what's going on in the galaxy that he's like, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna call up the Lethal temple and get on speakerphone on two separate lines Gosh. and do what I need to do. I wonder what Yoda had to do when he was a Padawan. Ooh, it would have been so many years ago. Like 800 years ago. Yeah. yeah. Or like 750 or whatever. It, it seems like there is a Star Wars tradition of some kind of mentor leading some kind of mentee through these things. Mm -hmm. So I imagine, I mean, I imagine he had a Jedi master who sent him off to go do the thing. And there, there's that cute line where Ezra says, what am I even looking for in this temple? And Kanan says, nothing and everything. And it's it's another moment of Ezra being like, that doesn't make any sense. And Kanan's like, I know, but that's what someone said to me. And yeah. then someone said it to them and, and on and on and on. And it down turns the line. out to be true, but in the way of so much wisdom, it doesn't like the the witticism, the little phrase of wisdom doesn't make sense until you've already learned it. And it's such like, a oh, oh, just, distilled little aphorism. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I imagine Yoda went through something similar. Hmm. Hmm. And the the master never leaves you, right? Even Obi-Wan Kenobi gets to commune with Qui-Gon after Qui-Gon is gone. Yeah, but that's like new stuff. That's from uh, season six of The Clone Wars when Qui-Gon was following through with this line of inquiry and teaching Yoda in the Yoda's Journey arc. Oh, that's true. So what was it like before this? I guess perhaps going back like 20,000 years or whatever, the first Force users came up with this plan and then were always able to move each other forward. And maybe when you were a Padawan, you had multiple masters taking you to the temple and like, yep. Take your stuff in. Here we are. And then as things went on, perhaps that original like purity of knowledge was lost or perhaps it became this distinctly personalized experience. Well, maybe we'll find out in the Acolyte when the Acolyte comes out. Yeah, that'd be cool. That would be really cool. Um, I'm actually reminded of another thing which could help with the logistics because, sorry, this is just something that's like on my mind. No, yeah, like, this is a fascinating discussion. Yeah. Keep going. What if like during the Clone Wars, you've got 100 Padawans or whatever, and they're all sitting there and they're all having this like, hey, it's it's time for me to get my kyber crystal. And so you sit there and you're like, all right, what are you thinking of? Meditate on a place. And then everyone who thought of the same place as you meet up with them. And then Ahsoka is going to take you to the planet that's proper or a different Jedi master. So oh. like, out of these hundred, like four of them think of, oh, I'm on a planet full of lava or I'm on a, I'm on a, I'm, <laughs> on, ice planet. I'm on space Kansas. <laughs> and I'm Is on that Lothal? Yeah, it's Lothal. <laughs> and so like four of them go to Lothal and four of them go to Ilum and they go back and forth and are doing like each one has like a distinctly personal journey. But when you have 10,000 Jedi, then you have 
some thousand Padawans. And so out of a thousand temples, you're going to have a pigeonholing problem and several of them are going to go to the same place. I love that theory because Sam knows this. One of my favorite tropes in fantasy sci-fi literature, and I, I don't even have the language to describe this, but it's the it's about being chosen by a personalized selection process. Like the Divergent books kind of get at this and the sorting hat. The sorting hat in Harry Potter gets at this. Like I love this idea that you go through a customized trial and then you get sorted into like where you need to be based on who you are. So I love that idea. I feel like that might just be like the emotional failings of an education system that is designed to put out cookie cutter workers as opposed to finding you your dream job. Yeah. Like I wanted someone to get all of my test scores and say, okay, here's where you need to be. And it's customized and personalized for you. If you were a Jedi youngling and Mm -hmm. you were deciding where your trial would be, where do you think you would end up? Oh, so... There is a mountain outside of Montrose, Colorado, and I've driven past it a bunch of times. And in the sort of El Nino years, like this one, where it's very, well, not this one particularly, but it's very, very green. And to the local people, because that valley, uh, like 800 years ago, before Columbus, before a mega drought, before a lot of things, had like 10 times as many people as it does now. And that's where Mesa Verde is and all these places. And that mountain speaks to me in a way which is incredibly like personal and from a remove. Mm. And so when I began my journey of sobriety, that was a spiritual place of power for me. Mm-hmm. And then later on, I moved to one of the passes over the Marin Bells because a hailstorm came over and nearly washed me off the <laughs> face of the earth. <laughs> Getting into like a thunderstorm in the middle of the night when you're above tree line is Horrifying. a whole it's a whole unique experience of like I'm grateful to be alive. There's just two there's like two layers, micro layers of nylon between me and just being scoured to my bones. (laughs) And both of those are mountains. They are places of nature. They're places which are worked on and they're nearby to civilization, but they aren't like any, there's not like a connection to civilization. And I think that's the kind of thing that would pull me. And it's interesting that for Ezra on Lethal, it's like just around the way, but it was on an icy part of Lothal, probably mm-hmm. someplace he'd never been to before. Mm-hmm. And so your experiences in this are probably related to like the shape of the problem as opposed to the specifics of it. Going back to the younglings arc, we have a bunch of people who were not, none of them are from an ice planet. And the only one who's comfortable is Gunji because he wears a fur coat. Because he's a Wookiee. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But he still had to, they all had to deal with their own personal problems in like a technological way or in like a personal way or a fear way. Or a logistics way. Yeah. And each of those was something which like the shape of where they were taken 
mattered, but it's the shape of the problem that matters more. Yeah. the So like Gunji ends up on the edge of an ice lake, but it, mm-hmm. but he can't get past the water to get to his kyber crystal. What he needs to learn is patience. Yeah. And so what he ends up doing is meditating until it gets cold enough in the cavern for the ice to freeze over. And then he can just roll across and pick up his kyber crystal. Whereas like in my experience, if I was thinking of summoning this quite steep hill outside of Montrose, I would need to learn the benefit of like being prepared and being prompt because if you are hiking out there in one of these beautiful summers and it's after 11 a.m., you're going to cook and die. Or get caught in a thunderstorm. (laughs) Or get caught in a thunderstorm. You are, if you're out in the mid-afternoon without shelter, you're in trouble. And that's just desert life. And I think that's really interesting how that changes the way you interact with the world and teaches you different lessons you need to learn. How about you? What would your Jedi temple be? I actually think it would be the forest outside of the village where Ahsoka was born. Oh, I love that. The the Togruton village where her mom, Pavti, you know, straps baby Ahsoka in a sling to mm-hmm. her back and takes the hunting rifle and goes out to find food for the family. Mm-hmm. And something about that deep alive forest feels like the place where I am most alive. Mm -hmm. So I don't know what the shape of the problem or the trial or the challenge would be. I think it would be very internal, but that feels like the setting where I would have the most power to tap into the living force. Interesting. I I knew that immediately and you knew yours immediately. I did. That's That's so cool. That's an interesting thing to ask oneself is where, what what type of problems would you be presented with if you had to overcome your character failings that prevented you from becoming a Jedi? I am guessing mine would be that I would have to learn how to trust myself. And perfectionism. If I am trusting in myself, then I don't have as much perfectionism. So I, I imagine the challenge would be something like that. I would probably end up lost in this beautiful forest. And Mm -hmm. literally the only problem would be that I have to trust myself to get out. And I know the way. But every time I doubt myself, the way gets twisted around. And so I would literally just have to walk out of this beautiful forest and, like, trust that I knew how to do it. That That would be my Jedi. That would be my Padawan challenge. Interesting. Yeah. I think mine would be with other people. It's always been tough for me to connect with other people in a way that is has that equanimity for communication, for emotion, for caring about other people. And so I have like friends, but there's a few friends who I hold very closely. And that is something that to be a Jedi, I feel like I need to expand a lot of. Perhaps so you- it would be dealing with loss in a meaningful way. Yeah, you might need to get an entire group of people to the top of that mountain outside of Montrose. Well, that sounds easy, but (laughs) that is like the type of thing that I threw myself into as a result of my upbringing. I think perhaps this is why they want to get younglings young because they have fewer traumas. Because I imagine as part of these trials, you're like, all right, we got to we got to de-traumatize you. We got to take away all of these learned trauma responses. And if you're a youngling, you probably have like pretty a, a light touch with trauma, perhaps. I don't, I, I disagree. Be, and here's why. One, Ezra 
at age eight had some deep-seated traumas. So did Han in the solo movie and so did Kira. But why I disagree is that we saw Yoda doing his own trial in season six of The Clone Wars when he did Yoda's journey. he was like 800 years old. And he is eight or 900 years old. And he had to confront lifetimes of traumas and the shadow self that he had to wrestle into submission. So I think it doesn't matter the scope of what you're overcoming. It matters that you overcome it. That's true. And Yoda's uh, demon was pride. Yeah. Which yeah. is which is a really interesting one for him to have to face. It was because, ego. Yeah, because he's like, I've faced my fears. I'm 800 years old. I'm a grandmaster of the Jedi Order. And they're like, yeah, you're too prideful. He's like, oh, yeah, you got me there. <laughs> 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 yep, you, you read me like a book. <laughs> There's one last thing that I want to talk about before we get to Baywatch. Mm-hmm. And... I love I love this and it is about love. Mm. And it's about love in Rebels and love in Star Wars. Ezra realizes in his trial that he's ha- he realizes he's having a vision because the people that he love are saying all of this mean stuff about him. Yeah. And it wasn't Kanan dying that was unbelievable. It wasn't the Inquisitor being there. It wasn't warping back and forth between the temple and the ghost. All of that he was ready to accept. Mm-hmm. What triggered him that he wasn't in reality was the ghost not loving him. As soon as he walked in on his mm-hmm. family saying all this terrible stuff, he's like, well, that can't be real. Yeah. the It proves how loved and safe he feels with them in real life. It does. I think the most, the one that's most out of character is Hera. Yes. Yeah. Because yeah. Zeb will say mean stuff and like he's terrified that Sabine thinks that he's just a little kid. Yeah. But Hera having an ulterior motive for loving him mm-hmm. was so blatantly false that it became his link to reality. He's like, absolutely not. It is false that Hera doesn't love me purely. And then when Sabine gets struck down by an Inquisitor and that doesn't set off a series of booby traps that blows up the planet... <laughs> He's like, all right, well, this is obviously a vision because <laughs> Sabine would not let herself go down without a hail of explosives. So Yeah. <laughs> and then, so obviously that is incredible, amazing. I, I tear up thinking about it. But then the fact that Ezra builds his lightsaber from the scraps of what everyone he yeah. loves gives him, like Sabine found spare parts and Harris scrounged things up. Chopper donated a power cell. Which is like the only belonging he has. Chopper has no. Chopper gave a piece of himself. Yeah, he's like, I don't use this one anymore. It's for my friendliness. <laughs> but like, I don't want to get too literal or yeah. too sappy. But Obi-Wan's main lesson for Anakin at this stage in Anakin's training was your lightsaber is your life. Mm-hmm. And what I took from this ending scene was that Ezra built his lightsaber. Ezra built his life from the pieces and the things that the people he loved freely gave him. Yeah, They gave him love. They gave him time. They gave him attention. They gave him everything that they had to give. And he built a new life out of that. I love that. I love that so much. Like, ah, oh my God, I can't. I can't. I can't. It's too beautiful. It's too good. How great is that? 
it's really sweet to be part of that family. And it also is like interesting from a literary point of view, because if you have a whole story of Jedi's, it's way less interesting than like a family. And I think that's true in Clone Wars when the family is the clones. And it's true now where you have like two Jedi and then the rest of the crew doing stuff. It's it's beautiful. Rebels is beautiful. Well, it is time for Baywatch. Okay. All right, I'm going to I'm going to swallow back down my tears knowing that they might yeah. come back again. Take, take 5, we'll grab the Kleenexes, which we keep next to the podcast. <laughs> we do, it's necessary. <laughs> it's time for Baywatch. Well, once again, we have an iconic duo. Last week we were talking about Hera and Sabine, and this week we're kind of talking about Kanan and Ezra. Yeah, yeah. I which one do you think deserves the title of Bay? My Bay this week is Kanan. Mhm. Because Ezra is 100% totally deserving, but I think it's harder to be the one who teaches than the one who is taught. Mhm. So I'm going to go with Kanan because I feel, I just really feel for Kanan. I think he's doing an incredibly hard thing. And I think he is not repeating some generational curses that is really important for me to see. So, for example, Ezra scares the living daylights out of Kanan when he touches the dark side of the Force. And you know what Kanan doesn't do? He doesn't blow up at Ezra. Yeah. He doesn't go over to Ezra and say, why did you do that? You blah, 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 la, da, da, la, da, da. What he says is, you weren't ready. You didn't know. I didn't teach you. Yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And for a dad figure to do that for his son is undoing so much generational trauma just for me to see it. And I'm I, sorry this is about daddy issues. No, it always no, is. I, but I, like. So I painted a wall in Anna's office and my parents came over. My dad's like, why didn't you do this thing I taught you 15 years ago? And I'm like, dad, you, you didn't teach me. You didn't teach me. And like coming at me for te- for for failing to teach. Like, yeah. 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 Look, yeah. At, look at Kanan being a good dad. And I just, like, I got really emotional when Kanan Fireman carries Ezra out of the facility. The concerned dad energy was so strong. And then I love their little debriefs on the Phantom because they pull down the jump seats. And they get, they're, like, really close and they're facing each other and their knees are almost touching. Mm -hmm. And they've done this multiple times and they have these big conversations. And they really get places yeah emotionally and i just i think these episodes are proof that their bond has really grown mm-hmm. because we're not i don't think seeing the bond growing i think these episodes feel so good and emotional and deep because they're just proof that the bond has already grown so they feel really earned mm, i like that especially because we've not come so far in season one, and we've already earned a really wonderful relationship. Yeah, yeah. So it's going to be Kanan. What about you? I'm going to choose Ezra because Ezra leaves it all in the... (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to choose Ezra because Ezra leaves it all on the bleeping court. (laughs) 
said, yeah, I have to cut that. Uh, <laughs> Ezra repeatedly picks up the lightsaber and faces down the Grand Inquisitor. Oh my gosh. And the Inquisitor takes it from him like a lollipop from a baby and, and he just keeps going. And he's like, then I'll use my fists. Like <laughs> Ezra... Uh, Combat forgives Sibo through space while being just like encircled by monsters. I he's mean, like, "Wow!" Because Kane's like, "You're gonna have to get over your fears," and he's like, "Okay, I guess I'm gonna have to get over my fears like right now, or I'm going to get eaten by monsters." That is what Ezra is all about, and he just leaves it all. He just does it. He grows so much. Yeah. Kanan is totally right that this is how Ezra learns. You have to shove him into the fire and say, "Okay." Do the thing, and then Ezra can finally do the thing. And it is really admirable to just watch him do the thing. Especially because in this arc and the previous one, he he has the the fast emotional churn of a teenager. Yeah. Of someone who like needs to make relationships quickly, as someone who's like deeply connected to everyone. And also he is willing, he is desperate. He has this beautiful desperation of like, I must become a Jedi because otherwise I'm going to tear myself apart. I'm willing to do whatever it takes. And then Kanan's like, yeah, do this thing. He's like, yep. Like I'll just like in um in the arc where they go to the spire to rescue Luminara, he just jumps out of a space shell. He's like, I'll just land using the force because I'm awesome. Like he just <laughs> does not. He doesn't know, he doesn't even contain the concept of holding something back. Mm -hmm. And that's pretty important for someone in his position for learning as fast as possible. He learned so hard and he loves so hard and he's dealing with such hard stuff. I think it is harder to teach than be taught, but it is so hard also to be taught. And it's hard to be a 15-year-old boy. Oh, I can only imagine. Mm-hmm. It was hard to be a 15-year-old girl. I don't know what it was like to be a 15-year-old boy, but I imagine it sucks. I think it's just hard to be a teenager. So if you are a teenager or one of our listeners out there, hang in there. You're doing great. You're doing great. It does get better. It gets so much better. It gets so good. Just yeah. keep going. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's what sorry, I got. Sorry about the everything. Like, <laughs> the world the world is not built for you, and honestly, for like a good reason, but it'll it'll get better. It'll... You're going to you're going to get there and you're doing so great and you're yeah. going to be great and we're proud of you. Yeah. Hang in there. Good, on that good note, Baywatch. Yeah, on that note, <laughs> let's uh let's take it out. Well, what are we watching next week? We're continuing on in season one of Rebels. We are watching episodes 11 and 12, Idiot's Array and Vision of Hope. Hmm. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> That's all I have to say to that. Idiot's Array sounds really mean, but I'm going to assume it's in good fun. Uh, Idiot's Array is a very delightful episode. Yay. Yeah, we're in for a treat. Well, if you love Growing Up Skywalker, there are a bunch of things that you can do to show your love and help us succeed. You can follow us on social media. We are on Facebook, Instagram, Threads, and Twitter X. Twixer. Twixer. 
Twexer. We can't just say X. Like, that makes no sense. It's real dumb. Why would you? Okay. I'm embarrassed Different just topic. saying it. Yeah. Yep, yep, yep. So you can follow us on social media. You can also become one of our patrons. On our Patreon, we release weekly bonus audio content. Sometimes we watch extra fun non-canon stuff. Sometimes we talk about leftovers we had from episodes of canon stuff. We let our hair down. We don't have to bleep out the curses. Sorry. It is great fun. <laughs> And the last thing you can do is make sure to hit the little bell and follow us and subscribe to us on your podcast platform. And if there is an option, please drop us five stars or leave us a review because it really just helps us to get into the earbuds of more people. And share this episode with someone who is teaching. Someone teaching and doing their best. Mm -hmm. And also someone who has a secret booby trap in case an Inquisitor kills them to blow up everything. <laughs> I just aspire to be that person. That's so cool. Peek Sabine right there. <laughs> and we'll talk to you next week. Bye-bye.